Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in John chapter 12. I'm going to cover verses 35 through 50 and finish up the chapter. Our context is Monday of Passion Week, just a few days before Jesus was to be killed on Friday. He is in the middle of a discourse. I didn't have time to finish the whole discourse in the previous audio, so I just did uh, verses 20 through 34. And in that passage, Jesus reflect, reflected on his approaching death. I'll, I'll briefly go through there to get you some context. Some Greece, Greeks, we don't know who they were, showed up at the feast. They went to Philip and Andrew and said, we want to speak to Jesus. And then Jesus, instead of really, at least John doesn't say what Jesus, what the questions they had of Jesus, but the way Jesus answered was, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. A grain of wheat must fall into the earth. If it dies, it bears much fruit or a large crop, and of course the idea is that Jesus is talking about the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. And then he just talks in general about salvation. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. If you hate your life in this world, keep it for eternal life. He talks about discipleship and about following him wherever a servant goes. He goes where the master is, and the father will honor him. Then he said the Son of Man must be lifted up. He said his soul was troubled, and then this is where the disbelief came in. He's, but in, a voice came from heaven to buck up Jesus and said, this is the Father. He says, I have glorified your name, I've glorified my name. The Father said, I've glorified my name, and I'll glorify it again. They're talking about resurrection. The crowd, some of the crowd heard, heard it as thunder. Others thought it was an angel. But at any rate, Jesus then says, look, judgment is coming. Now will the rule of this world be cast out, referring to his crucifixion and resurrection, when Satan will no longer be in charge of the world. He will be lifted up, draw all people unto himself. Now, in verse 34, which is the previous verse to where we're going to start, the people expressed doubt. They said, wait a minute, the scripture says the Son of Man is going to remain forever. He's going to be immortal. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? How can you say that the Messiah must be crucified? That doesn't make any sense. And so that's where we are now in verse 35. Jesus is getting ready to deal with these objections about him not living forever as Messiah. Verse 35 and 36, Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. Now you notice he didn't directly answer them about why he as Messiah was not going to live forever. I guess he figured they'd have to learn that on their own after he came back from the dead, and that would prove that he would live forever. And I also figure he didn't answer them directly because he had done enough miracles that to make any dull-witted moron know that he was the Messiah, and yet people were still hard-hearted enough not to believe in him. So he just he says, yeah, I'm going to die. The light will be with you only a little longer. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but if you walk with me while I'm here, you may become sons of light. And later on in the speech, he's going to talk about eternal life, and he's going to talk about the consequences of not believing in him. But he gets started right here and saying, yeah, you got you got some light here. You better take it. While you have the light, don't let the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. Of course, he's implying that his listeners, who were, I'm sure, Jews as well as those Greeks that came to the festival, they all were walking in darkness, and he pointed it out to them. Now, this light metaphor is a very common one, a very popular one in the book of John. John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, life was in him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. 
They tried to kill him. They didn't do it. John 8, 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 3.19, This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That is one of the great tragedies of human history, is that the very Son of God was walking amongst them, and people said, Ah, we don't believe you, Jesus. Your miracles weren't big enough for us. We know better than you. Now John Gill says that Jesus didn't answer their question about the Jesus about the Messiah supposed to be living forever, but yet Jesus is predicting his own death, and that seems to contradict in the Jewish mind. Jesus didn't answer that problem. He didn't talk about he was going to be resurrected from the dead. He didn't answer them, according to John Gill, because they were ignorant and stupid, which is probably exactly true. It's the idea if you don't cast your pearls before swine, you're wasting your time. Now, Jesus, again, he didn't deny that he was about to die when they complained about the Messiah supposed to remain forever because he said in verse 36, while you have the light, this is an implication is you're not going to have the light forever. The light's going to go away. So you see this constant jarring of the Jewish conceptions of the Messiah and Jesus's conception of what the, who the true Messiah was. It totally contradicted and caused a lot of soul-searching, shall we say, a lot of contradictions in their minds. Now, after Jesus said this, he went away and hid. That was for his own safety. He was not He was not time yet. He had a lot of stuff to do on Tuesday and Wednesday. Lots of stuff that we read about in the Gospels hadn't been done yet. It was not his hour to be killed, so he left. He either mingled with the crowd there in Jerusalem, or he might have retired all the way to Bethany to end his ministry on Monday. I didn't mention this is on Monday of Passion Week. John twelve thirty-seven through 38. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. But this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message, and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? This is a quote from Isaiah 53.1, which says this, Who has believed what we have heard, and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? Pretty direct quote. Well, the arm of the Lord hadn't been revealed to people who don't believe. And they didn't believe, even though they had seen many signs, in their presence. This is referring to miracles done in Jerusalem, because this is the Jerusalem crowd that's being referred to. We have some examples. The cure of the lame man at Bethesda's pool, the pool of Bethesda up north near the Sheep Gate, north of the temple. And in the south of Jerusalem, in the pool of Siloam, you had the healing of the man born blind when he rubbed the saliva, Jesus' saliva and spit into his eyes. We had the raising of Lazarus, which had occurred shortly before, all the Jews went out to see Lazarus, you know. So there was lots of stuff done in the miracles, and they still didn't believe. And Isaiah predicted it. Who believed our message? John 12. And note how the New Testament writers refer to the Old Testament prophecies all the time to show that the revelation of God was being fulfilled. John 12, verse 39 through 40. This is why they were unable to leave, believe, because Isaiah also said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and be converted, and I would heal them. Now, of course, the first problem, I remember, the first problem you might have is the same problem I had when I was young. I read that, oh, my gosh, God made them unable to believe. God blinded their eyes. How can you hold them accountable for not believing? Well, this is an old theological problem. How can unbelief be faulted if it's caused by God? There's a simple answer to it. Look at how the verse was fulfilled. Jesus had given the Pharisees every chance in the world to repent, and they obstinately continued in their unbelief. 
Therefore, their inability to believe was their punishment for their willful sin. This is punishment. Here's how the NIV Study Bible puts it, and I quote, does not mean that the people in question had no choice. They purposely chose evil. And verse 40 explains that God in turn brought on them a judicial blinding of eyes and hardening of hearts. So no, God's not. And besides, you know, you say God made your heart hard. Everybody's heart is hard as soon as they come into the world. God doesn't need to make it hard. It's already hard. We're born into sin. So God doesn't make, need to make somebody's heart hard so he won't believe in the Messiah's miracles. It's already that way. Now, John quotes Isaiah again. He quoted him first in verses 38. He says, who has believed our message? And now he quotes Isaiah again. And he says, I, God has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so they can't see or understand that they would be converted and that they would be healed, that God would heal them. So that second quotation of Isaiah, that comes from Isaiah 6.10. Dull the minds of these people, deafen their ears, and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back, and be healed. And again, the same thing applies. This is judicial punishment for their errant rebellion against God, and their unrighteousness, and their hatred of God. Now, this is a very, Isaiah 6.10 is a famous scripture. Jesus quoted it, and Paul quoted it. Let's look where Jesus quoted this scripture. This is from the NIV Study Bible. Matthew 13, 14 through 15. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You will listen and listen, yet never understand, and you will look and look, yet never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous, their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn back, and I would cure them. So Matthew quotes the Isaiah 6.10 there, and Mark does it too in Mark 4.12, so that they may look yet not perceive, they may listen and listen, yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. Luke quotes Isaiah 6.10. This is in Luke 8.10. So he said, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know, but to the rest it is in parables. This is Jesus speaking. So that looking they may not see, and hearing they might not understand. Not only is it in all three gospels, synoptic gospels, it's all, Paul also quoted Isaiah 6.10 and Acts 28.26-27, when he, God, said, Go to these people and say, You will listen and listen, yet never understand, and you will look and you, yet never perceive. For the hearts of these people have grown callous, their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and be converted, and I would heal them. Now what can we gather from all this is that when you preach the gospel, you might as well get used to the fact there's going to be a lot of resistance and a lot of people are not going to believe. And you better believe in the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit to guide you to the elect, to the right person who is willing to believe. They're out there, obviously, because Jesus found them and Paul found them and we can find them too. But you got to expect a lot of resistance because not everybody is chosen not everybody believes. A lot of people are have a judicial hardening of their hearts because people have just gotten further and further sunk in their sin and they're just not going to believe. John twelve forty one. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Well, now John's quoted Isaiah twice. Who's going to believe, he says, quoting Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what we have heard? Who is the arm, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? And then also he quoted Isaiah 6, 10. He said, God's blind, dulled their minds, deafened their ears, blinded their eyes, so they can't believe. So now he's done all these things, 
And John 12 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, because Isaiah saw God the Father's glory and spoke about him. Or it could be because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now, it's interesting that Isaiah mainly talked about disbelief, the disbelief of the people. But here it says Isaiah saw his glory. That could be, I'm going to talk about this in a minute. That could either be the Father's glory or Jesus' glory. But Isaiah said these things because he saw God or Jesus' glory. Well, he wasn't talking about glory. He was talking about people not believing in him. Well, I think the answer to that is because Jesus's, the rejection of Jesus, his crucifixion, is so closely tied to his resurrection. They were only three days apart that if you spoke about one, you spoke about the other. And so Isaiah, when he speaks about people not believing, he's also speaking about Jesus resurrecting him from the dead. I mean, after all, Isaiah also prophesied of all the healings and glorious things that Jesus had done. You know, the blind see, the deaf hear. The kingdom of God is here. The jubilee is approached. I don't have the, the quote. I forgot where that is in Isaiah, but you know the scripture. So I think Jesus' humiliation and glory go all go together. Now let's talk about this his here. Isaiah said these things. I'm in John 12, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. The Holman Christian Study Bible capitalizes his, of course, but it doesn't tell us who the his is. Isaiah saw these things because he saw God's glory and spoke about him, or is it because he talked about, because Isaiah saw prophetically Jesus' glory and spoke about him, spoke about Jesus? Well, interestingly enough, the NIV has Jesus there. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus. I didn't check to see whether that's a textual difference or whether it's a matter of a translator's interpretation. But the NIV study Bible says Isaiah spoke about the glory of God, but John, in quoting that, John, in quoting that passage from Isaiah, refers the his to Jesus. So Isaiah spoke of the glory of God, but John spoke of the glory of Jesus, which shows that John made no basic distinction between God and Jesus, thus attesting Jesus' oneness with God. And I think that's probably accurate. I have gone back and checked the Greek. The Greek is his, Altu, it's not Jesus. So the NIV Study Bible did a little bit of interpretation there. They got away from the Greek text. I think their interpretation, however, is correct. It's, Isaiah was talking about Jesus' glory. Now, John spoke here of Jesus' glory. That means his majesty, of course, and, and there's a special reference here, of course, to Jesus' resurrection, his exaltation to heaven, which is a favorite theme of John's, according to the NIV Study Bible. John constantly talks about resurrection and rising to heaven. We go to John 12, verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. So they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Now we have a couple of problems here. The first is, is who were these people that believed in him? It says among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Some people say it's the rulers of the Pharisees. So the leaders of the Pharisees all said, no, 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 you can't believe in him. But some of the other non-leaders of the Pharisees did believe in him, sort of. They wouldn't confess him, but they believed he was the Messiah in, in some way. Or it could be the rulers of the synagogue. But remember, the Pharisees had a lot of clout. They were the religious leaders, and some of them were actually on the Sanhedrin, although most of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. They had a lot of clout, and they were scared that they, the Pharisees might get them banned from the synagogue, either directly or indirectly, however they do that. So that's the first problem is who we're talking about. I'm assuming it's the rules of the synagogue. 
some of the big shots. After all, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, well, they were rulers of the synagogue. They believed, so some others apparently believed too. And remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. They were, they were pretty quiet about it. They were scared. Now, John chastises them for their diffidence, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. So the next question is, well, did they really believe in Jesus if they loved praise from men more than praise from God? Well, let's first look at this idea of being banned from the synagogue. That was serious business because that was a social banning. That means you were an outcast of society. It's like you were an Amish society and you get kicked out of the community. John 9:22. His, and this is referring to the man born blind, his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. Then what things? They said, we're not going to testify about how. Who, who, who healed our son? We're not going to get involved in this messianic controversy. Why did they do that? Because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. So this was a serious, serious problem. So these people believed. How did they believe? Well, options. First option, they could believe just like you and I believe, believed unto salvation. John Gill says, however, option number two is correct. They believed not in a saving manner. Now, let's see what he says about that. Quote, they did, quote, as they ought to have done, and as they would have done if their faith had been right, for wherewith the heart men believe in Christ to righteousness, there, with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. And between a non-confession of Christ and a denying him is no medium. And Christ interprets the one to be the same with the other. And, of course, we think of this famous verse in Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So they did the believing, but they didn't do the confessing. So the question is, is are they saved or not? And John Gill was pretty strong that they're not saved. But I must say, you know, Nicodemus, he doesn't seem to me that he wasn't saved. I mean, after all, he prepared Jesus' body for burial, and he hid, it, hid his faith in Christ all the way through the whole events there at the end. So... I don't know. I think they were probably saved, but they were probably not flying right by not confessing Jesus. But it's hard for me to tell, say who, what you ought to do, confess Jesus when you're going to get clobbered. I mean, when I was in China, you confessed Jesus in the classroom, and your little fanny would be toast. You would be escorted out of the country. You'd be told, 48 hours you got to get your passport, pack up your stuff, and leave the People's Republic of China. And so I never did. I never talked about Jesus in class. I did a lot of it on the outside, though. I'm not saying I just completely shut up about it, but you know you got to be wise about it. And I and and couldn't we just say that these people that believed were being strategic, were being quiet because they didn't want to get killed or get banned from the synagogue? You could say that, but unfortunately, John John puts a negative light on what they did because he says, "For they loved praise from men more than praise from God." Well, John Gill, after making a strong statement that these people didn't believe. Gill does concede that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus may have had saving faith. I mean, Joseph of Arimathea risked his reputation to get Jesus' body off the cross and to bury Jesus in his tomb. I mean, come on, they were believers. Well, at any rate, we don't know. This is all speculation. But you see here the conflict. People openly disbelieve. Some people secretly believe. They want to believe in Jesus the Messiah, but they're scared. I mean, you could say the same thing about the Apostle Peter. Yeah, he believed, but secretly. He wasn't going, no, I don't believe him. I don't know him. You know, he denied Jesus. It was not commendable that he did that, but I'm not going to say he wasn't saved because he obviously was saved. And I suspect that a lot of these people here that 
and the a lot of these rulers here that heard Jesus, I believe they got saved. They might not have been loud about it until after Pentecost, just like Peter. But anyway, you know, that's one of the hardest questions. Who's saved and who isn't? We go to John 12, verses 44 through 46. Then Jesus cried out, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So Jesus returns to his light metaphor. This is not teaching in a normal tone because he cried out in verse 44. There was, the NIV study Bible says his words were spoken out in a loud voice. So now he's really calling attention to himself in the, in the temple courtyard there. As I say this, I realize I said back in verse 34, was it, that Jesus went away and hid himself. This was after he started talking about he was the light of the world. Uh, excuse me, it was verse, verse 36. It says, Jesus said this, that he, while you have the light, you, you believe in the light so that you can be sons of light. Jesus said this and went away and hid from them. And I said, well, he could have hid from them by going all the way back to Bethany. I don't think so. I think that was a mistake. I was relying on John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown's opinion there, but I don't see how that can be. I don't know where they get that from because you get down to verse 44, Jesus cries out in the Lord loud voice. So it seems to me that earlier he just hid himself in the crowd and then he popped up again going from place to place so he won't be caught and arrested by the Jewish leaders. Now when Jesus says in verse 44 of John 12, the one who believes in me believes not in me, he, he means not merely in me. Because obviously if you believe in him who sent Jesus, that's the Father, you're going to believe in Jesus too. You notice this is one of the themes of John, the close connection of Jesus and the Father. They're both God. The one who believes in me believes not merely in me, but in him who sent me. So you believe in the Son, you believe in the one who sent the Son, the Father. The one who sees me, the one who sees Jesus, sees him, the Father who sent me, Jesus. So if you see Jesus, you see the Father. So if you believe in Jesus, you believe in the Father. If you see Jesus, you believe in the Father. There are two things that Jesus, that John stresses all throughout his Gospels. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. The first thing he emphasizes is Jesus' mission that he came to save. He came to save the world. The second thing that John stresses throughout his gospel is the inseparability of the Father and the Son. And he really does emphasize that a lot. I'll give you one example here. John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? So, you want to see the Father? You look at the Son. God is too big and incomprehensible for you? Well, look at Jesus. That's what Jesus told Philip. That's what I'm telling you. Look at Jesus, and you'll see the very nature of God. Notice in verse 46 in John 12, I have come as a light into the world. I have come. That implies that he was coming from somewhere else besides the world. This shows Jesus' preexistence, his preexistence with the Father. And it also shows his mission. He's coming to the world to save people. And again, the light metaphor everywhere. John 1, 4 through 5, life was in him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. John 8, 12, and then Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Light giving life, or life giving light, I guess you could say too. John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, in verse 46, this is 
how John ends the account of Jesus' public ministry. An appeal for people to believe, this is the NIV Study Bible points this out, even though Jesus might have spoken the words earlier, and of course you never know, the time order sometimes is jumbled by the gospel writers, but I'm assuming it's in time order just for simplicity's sake. And so here we have Jesus saying, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. What a perfect way to end an evangelistic message. That's it. Believe in me, you'll walk in light, you won't be in darkness. Now, I said this was the last thing Jesus said. This is the beginning of the last thing, verse 46. I've come as a light into the world because he continues that same speech in 47 through 50, and that will end his his appeal for people to get saved. So let's read that, 47 through 50 in John 12. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what I should say and what I should speak. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And that concludes his gospel message. Now, let's take up a problem that used to bug me pretty much. This is where Jesus says, I don't judge him. Verse 12, John 12, 47. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. Okay, well, so that means Jesus didn't come into the world to judge, right? But then there are other verses that say he did come into the world to judge. So let's go through that now. I got three verses that say that Jesus, in, in the book of John, three verses that say that Jesus did not come to judge the world. And I've got two verses in John that say that he did come to judge the world. Now, John was not stupid. He's not going to put verses in his gospel that blatantly contradict each other even on a human level he's not going to do that and the holy spirit inspiring inspiring him of course is not going to do that so let's see how we reconcile this these are three verses that say that jesus did not come to judge the world john three seventeen. for god did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him john twelve forty seven. the verse we just read if anyone hears my messages and does not keep them i do not judge him for i did not come to judge the world but to save the world John 5.45, do you, do you do not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So Jesus is not going to accuse you to the Father. He's not going to judge. But now, here are verses that say that Jesus did come to judge the world. John 5.22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Well, let's reconcile that one real quick. John 3:17 and so forth, where it says God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, and so forth, the other two verses too, that is referring to Jesus' first advent. Jesus came, and he's in the world. That wasn't his ministry. John 5:22 that says he is given, the Father has given all judgment to the Son, that's referring to Jesus' second advent when he judges at the end of time. Well, yeah, Jesus is going to judge at the end of time, no question. So that handles that verse. Now let's look at John 9:39, another verse that says Jesus came to judge the world. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. In other words, that those who do not see or are walking in darkness will have light, and they'll see, and those who, who see, the ones who think they see because they're pharisaical hotshots, they think they see, but they're going to be judicially blinded. Now, that verse in John 9:39 says that Jesus says this, that quotes Jesus as saying this, For judgment I came into this world. Now the way that, the standard way to reconcile that, this is the NIV Study Bible, Albert Barnes, Pink, says this, 
The object of his mission was salvation. The moral effect of his life was judgment. So his purpose was to save, but the effect of his salvation message was that people who don't believe are going to be judged. Here's a quote from Pink. I forgot Pink's first name. He used to, Pink's an interesting guy. You know, he's a famous Calvinist writer that everybody quotes. He quote he spent some of his time in Greenville, South Carolina, at a church, but he never could handle church life too well, and he ended up being by himself and not going to church. But the boy, the boy could write. But anyway, here's what Pink says. He, Jesus, was the light of the world, and this light acted in a double way. It convicted and converted. It judged, and it saved. Furthermore, it dazzled by its heavenly brightness all those who thought they saw, while at the same time, it lightened all those who really felt their moral and spiritual blindness. He came not to judge, but to save. And yet, when come, he judged every man and put every man to the test. We could quote John three nineteen through 21 here. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. In other words, men judge themselves because they rejected Jesus. In other words, when Jesus says he did not come into the world, it means that was not his mission. That was not the object of his mission. Now, it's true that there's going to be a side effect of his mission coming into the world. There was going to be judgment. And that's talking about after his first advent. And, of course, John 5.22, you can distinguish by saying that he doesn't judge when he came the first time. He came to judge the second time. He's going to come to judge the second time when he comes. Now, if you think about this, in John 3.17, I did not come to judge, but God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. It was not necessary. The world was already judged. The world's already under sin. And so it was already judged. So when Jesus came into the world, his point was not to say, hey, you guys are sinners. That people are, you know, everybody was living under the judgment of sin. I mean, he did say that they were sinners, but that wasn't his main, his main, the law's main function was to point it out to Jews that they were sinners before God and that God was holding they were not. That was the main object of the law, but that was not Jesus' main purpose. The law had already judged them. John the Baptist had already preached that they were sinners. And so now he's saying, now that you understand that you're sinners, hopefully, then you'll see that I came to save you from your sin. Let's look at this little word for in verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself has basically spoken and given Jesus the command of what to speak. Referring back to verse 48, we read this. The one who rejects me and doesn't accept my sayings has this as his judge. The words I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own. In other words, the words that I speak are the words that the Father speaks. Because I didn't come on my own, but my Father has given me a command. He's given me the words to speak. And so, since God's going to be in charge of the judgment of the last day, and he's given me the words to speak, and I'm speaking him, the words I'm speaking are the Father's words. And he's given me the command what I'm going to speak. And his command is eternal life for those who believe and judgment for those who don't, who don't believe. Jesus and the Father are one. They're not to be separated. Jesus says in verse 49, he says, The Father himself has given me a command as to what I should say. We read in John 8:28. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. Jesus taught the Father, God the Father taught Jesus what to say. The words of Jesus are the words of the Father. The words of the Father are the words of Jesus. And I might add that the words of Jesus' apostles are the words of Jesus, and they're also the words of the Father. For those people who want to say, well, that's just Paul's opinion. I can do whatever the, whatever the Gehenna I want to. I'm just, I don't care what the, I only care what Jesus said. 
No, you don't. If you cared what Jesus said, you would listen to what Paul said and what Peter said and what Jude said and what John said. All right, so this is the end of Jesus' public ministry. This is it. Well, it is, at least it is for Monday. This is as far as what John reports. Now, Tuesday, there's a lot of stuff Tuesday and Wednesday. Tuesday, you got the, all the controversies in the temple and all of it discourse and all that's in the Synoptic Gospels. John doesn't cover that. John picks up the story again in the Lord's Supper, skipping all that. So this is basically the last discourse of Jesus in the public that John records, and it's not recorded in the other Gospels. It's a great way to end Jesus' public pre- preaching here. Even though, of course, he had, like I said, he had other controversies in the temple. This was basically an evangelistic message. Great way to do it. John himself wrote in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. It's just as simple as that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with John chapter 12, covering verses 35 through 50 which I've entitled The People Disbelieved. Next audio, we're going to go straight to John 13, take the first 20 verses where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper. We're going to skip all the events of Tuesday and Wednesday, which we covered in the Synoptic Gospels. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 